Mayor Lightfoot says the requirement to show proof of vaccination at restaurants, gyms, theaters, and other indoor spots could come to an end within weeks if COVID metrics keep dropping. But as the mayor notes, one unknown is the new subvariant, which could cause local case counts to plateau or even go up. And I'll talk with Cranes reporter Katherine Davis about why companies come to Chicago to innovate, as about a dozen companies, including Tyson Foods, Caterpillar, and the Department of Defense, among others, have all opened innovation hubs here just in the last few years. So there's not a ton of data showing like exactly how many innovation centers we have compared to other cities. But I did find a report from the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition that said that Illinois ranked ninth nationally in research and development activity, which is a lot of what's happening in these innovation hubs and is a good metric to use when we're looking for ways to say, you know, how innovative is a certain city. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, February 8th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Cranes reporter Katherine Davis, who recently wrote about why companies come to Chicago to innovate. That's a big topic. Tell me where you started with that. Yeah, so basically I you know, started looking at this trend of corporate companies that aren't generally thought of as tech companies. I think you know, Tyson Foods, DHL, Caterpillar, these big corporate companies, not in tech, that have been putting what they call innovation centers in Chicago. And there's even some of this activity going on uh, near U of I and Champaign as well. So I wanted to see, you know, why are, are these corporate companies coming to Illinois to, you know, quote unquote, innovate? What exactly are they doing in these hubs? Is there a lot of work going on? Is it a networking thing? And, you know, my reporting revealed that these hubs serve several different purposes. You know, sometimes it is to develop new products. Bosch has a really great example of that. They developed IOT products to help their clients electronically track tools like drills and things. So that's like one example. Another example is Accenture. You know, they use their innovation hub to connect their clients to third party technologies and and startup companies in town with SaaS products or or other software that can help grow their business. You know, there's a number of, of uses for these sort of hubs. And, you know, we just wanted to see what exactly was going on, because there's been maybe about a dozen that have come to Chicago since 2016. So in a way, it becomes kind of like a a pipeline for companies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one really interesting part of this is that innovation hubs are really useful to the local startup economy. Startups, they, they get invited to these hubs, and oftentimes these corporate companies can be potential clients or potential investors or, you know, even... Uh, a future partner in in the form of an acquirer. You know, you often see these corporate companies acquiring smaller startup companies as they try to remain innovative and and sort of cutting edge and offering the latest and greatest to their customers. Accenture is a really good example of this. They opened their innovation hub 
back in 2017. And, you know, since then they've acquired a few Chicago tech companies just in the last few years. And, you know, I think they were introduced to those founders and those companies through work they were doing at the Innovation Hub. If you had to characterize some of the, these different innovation hubs, are they pretty closely aligned with the company's mission or are they kind of forecasting where the company might be investing for future stuff? Yeah, I would say it's definitely a, you know, a group of forward-looking people working in these hubs. So they are looking at ways to expand offerings, to innovate offerings, sort of modernize them as well. Um, you know, like I said, there's a lot of collaboration going on here, um, not just internally, but with other corporate companies in the area, other startups in the area, et cetera. And then what does that do in terms of job creation? So, you know, it's interesting that these innovation hubs actually don't create that many jobs. I think one of the largest innovation hubs in Chicago is from Bosch, and they only have about 25 full-time people there. So these innovation hubs aren't really big job creators, you know, I, they should not be confused with the corporate tech offices that we've seen from places like John Deere or Amazon, where they've opened offices and now employ hundreds of software developers or IT professionals or whatever. Innovation hubs are not really a job creator. They really are, you know, sort of almost like a, a networking space in an area for, you know, internal employees to look outside of their company and, and meet and discover other startup founders in the area. When it's like a, an innovation center, how does that differ from some of the business incubators that we've seen? At the end of their time there, are they beholden to the company? Does the company own a percentage of the startup? How does that work? So these innovation centers are pretty different from what you would think of as like an 1871 or a matter or something like that. Um, you know, 1871 is very much in the business of incubating small companies. So generally startups are paying 1871 for a place to work out of and access to mentors and things. Whereas innovation hubs, I think there are some co-working elements to them sometimes, but, you know, generally speaking, deals are only being made if it makes sense for the corporate company generally, you know, they're opportunistic in who they work with. It's not like their sole purpose is to incubate companies or help them along the way. So I'd say that's the main difference. How does Chicago compare to other cities? I'm sure it's happening everywhere, but who is leading the way if not us? So there's not a ton of data showing like exactly how many innovation centers we have compared to other cities. But I did find a report from the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition that said that Illinois ranked ninth nationally in research and development activity, which is a lot of what's happening in these innovation hubs and is a good metric to use when we're looking for ways to say, you know, how innovative is a certain city. The other places around the country that are leading in R&D activity would be, you know, California, Massachusetts, both homes to bigger tech and innovation hubs like Silicon Valley or Boston. But, you know, Illinois, I think, is, is definitely growing when it comes to research and development activity. Just specifically in business R&D expenditures, Illinois reached $14.4 billion in 2017. And that's been increasing about 2.4% annually since 2013. So the segment is certainly growing. So we've talked about this on the, the benefits to the, to the businesses that are sponsoring these. What about the benefits to the startups? What does this help them do? 
most startups in Chicago, it's interesting, there's certainly this trend of where, you know, as opposed to growing really large and going public on the stock market one day, a lot of Chicago startups opt for the acquisition exit model. And oftentimes, you know, the companies that want to and can afford to acquire them are these corporate sized giants. And so that's really where I think there is an opportunity for the local startup community when it comes to these innovation centers. You know, Accenture having a really large presence here and being willing to meet with startup founders and learning about their technologies is undoubtedly good for them. You know, same thing with other companies like Tyson Foods or Univar Solutions. They're food companies, but they've set up shop at the Hatchery, which is a West Side food incubator. Hundreds of startups work out of there. And, you know, they both told me, um, you know, for this story and in past reporting that, you know, they're looking for companies to acquire. They're looking for ways to stay ahead of the food trends and to, you know, consistently be a relevant company to consumers. And then the Department of Defense is in the mix here somewhere, too. The Department of Defense is actually one of the more recent examples of this trend. They opened their innovation hub back in the fall. When I talked to them, they told me that they really wanted to be close to the startup community here. They said that one of the major metrics they were looking at was venture capital and how much of it was coming to Chicago and and the companies here. We've done extensive reporting on the record amounts of venture capital coming to Illinois in the last year. Um, I think it top $7 billion, approaching $8 billion, which is the most Chicago and Illinois have ever seen. And, you know, when I talked to the DOD, they were like, you know, we go where the money is. So the venture capital stats is a really important part of this story. I think a lot of out-of-town companies, when they're looking to see, well, who's doing what, who has the resources to grow and build, venture capital is part of what they're looking at. And, you know, Chicago continuing to raise record amounts is, is only a good signal to those outside of the state. I, I feel like every time we talked or I've, every time I talked to John Pletz last year, it was another mention of another Chicago unicorn. I think he even joked at one point, I don't know that unicorn is going to mean anything soon. We're going to have to come up with another animal because there were so many that were reaching that billion dollar valuation status. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think we just had another unicorn this week and that's maybe 14th or 15th now. It's nice to see Chicago kind of leading the pack in some ways and leading in in a way that even the Department of Defense would notice and people would take notice of all the venture capital flowing in here. Catherine, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time to talk it through today. Yeah, you too, Amy. Coming up, the state appeals a temporary order blocking a requirement for masks in schools. Judge Raylene Grishow's ruling is out of step with the vast majority of legal analysis in Illinois and across the nation. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Cranes Academy is excited to announce our next session of executive education programming, Equity Leadership, taking place in Chicago on March 10th and 11th. Cranes Academy Equity Leadership will guide executives through diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and activation, driving organizational change and growth. The session will address key considerations in developing a rich DEI strategy and implementing initiatives for your organization. For more information, visit cranesacademy.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
Mayor Lori Lightfoot said that if the city's COVID progress continues, quote, we will be able to lift the vaccination requirement for indoor dining in a matter of weeks. According to a statement from the Illinois Restaurant Association, where Lightfoot gave the keynote address at the group's annual meeting at the Union League Club recently, the mayor said the city's vaccination requirement could lift, quote, as long as we continue to make progress with a downward trend in the city's overall COVID-19 metrics. The requirement to show vaccination cards has been in place since January 3rd and requires anyone five and older to show proof of vaccination to dine indoors, go to the gym or visit entertainment venues where food or drinks are being served. And according to the city's COVID dashboard, as of late last week, cases were trending downward, with the average daily case rate at 870. That's down 47 percent compared to the week prior, but it's still in the city's very high transmission category. COVID hospitalizations were averaging 84 per day, down 43 percent from the week prior. Earlier last week, the Chicago Department of Public Health described hospitalizations and ICU capacity still in the high or substantial transmission categories. COVID deaths were also tracking downward, with an average of 15 such deaths in Chicago per day. The positivity rate was at 4%, down from 6.8% the week before that and in the lower transmission category. However, one lingering question, Lightfoot said, is the subvariant BA2, sometimes called stealth Omicron, which could cause case counts to plateau or even possibly increase. Public Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady has said that when cases, test positivity, and hospitalization rates all reach what the city defines as a lower transmission rate, officials will consider easing up on indoor masking and proof of vaccination to be a requirement for certain indoor spaces. Three Chicago homes, each priced at nearly $9 million, recently sold without even hitting the open market. A strong display of momentum in the real estate market's upper edge. On January 13th, a Gold Coast condo sold for $8.96 million, a private transaction that showed up in public records on February 3rd. And in the first week of February, a mansion in Lincoln Park also sold for $8.65 million. Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin notes that these two are now the highest and second highest priced home sales so far in 2022 and bring the year-to-date total of city homes going for $5 million or more up to six. Another home in Lincoln Park, priced just short of $9 million when it went onto a private agent's network a couple of weeks ago, reportedly went under contract to a buyer at the end of January. The sale price won't be disclosed until the deal closes in March, but as Rodkin also notes, given that the home landed a buyer so quickly, the final figure is likely to be close to the asking price. We'll discuss these three homes in more detail and much more later in the week with Dennis Rodkin. You can catch our video live stream on Wednesdays at 10.30 a.m. Central on Facebook or LinkedIn, or the audio on the following podcast. Trading firm DRW Holdings has expanded its West Loop headquarters, making room for a Chicago workforce it has built up during the pandemic and plans to keep growing with close to 80 more jobs. The company confirmed they have leased more than 60,000 square feet across two floors at 540 West Madison, a move that brings the company's total footprint in the building close to 200,000 square feet. Crane's Danny Ecker reports that the lease completes one of the largest expansions of downtown office space since the start of the pandemic. 
As many companies have reevaluated their workspaces with the rise of remote work over the past two years, some have sought to downsize their office space, driving downtown office vacancy to a record high in 2021. But DRW is part of a group of companies making statements about their commitment to in-person office work and taking advantage of a soft market for landlords. DRW is well known as one of the biggest high-speed trading firms in Chicago, but the company has also expanded its reach into venture capital, cryptocurrencies, and real estate. Ecker also reports that one of the company's subsidiaries, Convexity Properties, co-developed the new 1.5 million square foot BMO Tower that opened last month next to Union Station. Governor J.B. Pritzker is seeking an appeal of a judge's ruling temporarily blocking the state from enforcing a mask requirement at dozens of school districts. The judge's decision cultivates chaos for parents, families, teachers, and school administrators across the state. And I've asked Attorney General Kwame Raoul to seek to have the ruling overturned with all possible speed. Late Friday, a Sangamon County judge ruled in favor of the group of parents who brought the lawsuit, issuing a temporary restraining order against Pritzker's executive order requiring school districts to require masks for students and teachers. The temporary order also applies to the governor's order that school districts deny entry for a period of time to students and teachers who are in close contact of confirmed or probable COVID-19 cases if they refuse to test. The judge denied the plaintiff's request for class certification, so the restraining order only applies to the parties in the case. But she also declared the State Department of Public Health and Board of Education rules void and in a footnote said any non-named plaintiffs and school districts throughout this state may govern themselves accordingly. Attorney General Kwame Raoul is seeking an expedited appeal from the 4th District Illinois Appellate Court, that according to a statement from the governor's office. Pritzker said in the statement, quote, the grave consequences of this misguided decision is that schools in these districts no longer have sufficient tools to keep students and staff safe while COVID-19 continues to threaten our communities. For millions of Illinoisans, wearing masks has never been about what was required by the governor or any other authority. No. Masks, for most people anyway, have been about doing what's right. For yourself, for your loved ones, for others, for your community as a whole. According to the Illinois Education Association, the required safety measures have been able to keep students in class this year, and without them, they say in-person learning is at risk. The association's president, Kathy Griffin, said in a statement, quote, Without those safety measures in place, we risk forcing thousands of teachers, education employees, and students to be out sick or forced into quarantine. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your audio on demand. Be sure to subscribe to Crane's Daily Gist, and don't forget to rate and review. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time. Crane's Audio Studio is proud to introduce the podcast series Four Star Stories. It debuts with Bronzeville, reported in three chapters by Dennis Rodkin. Once known as the Black Metropolis, Bronzeville is being reshaped by a construction boom that is revitalizing thousands of vacant lots. Home prices have soared to levels that buyers and sellers even less than a decade ago could never have imagined. 
Can this be done in a new way without forcing out longtime residents? And can it be done with respect for what's been there, including a deep reservoir of black community and achievement? To create a new Bronxville that welcomes others, but that is still very clearly the heart of this unique Midwestern black experience. The Bronzeville series from Crane's Audio Studio is part of Four Star Stories, Crane's ongoing effort to uncover Chicago's past, present, and future through the voices of the people who live and work here. Search Four Star Stories wherever you listen to podcasts to hear the full trailer and to subscribe. Four Star Stories, Bronzeville, in three chapters.